Hey, good morning. We do this every week, actually. Um, so glad you are with us today. Uh, if you're a guest, welcome. We have been exploring uh, Christian community. Uh, what is it? Why is it? Uh, why be a part of it? Um, and up until this point, we've been looking at it from really kind of a higher level, big picture, historical perspective, right? Uh, I've been trying to help us see uh, the bigger picture that we get to play um, a really significant but really small part in uh, the Jesus movement. The Jesus movement started some 2,000 odd years ago with one man's audacious claims as to who he was, right? That he rose from the dead, and it started with this small, persecuted minority religious sect, right, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And that small minority persecuted sect has become the large, one of the largest, most ethnically diverse uh, religion on the face of the earth today. Now, that's something to be reckoned with, especially if you find yourself outside of uh, Christian faith. You have to figure out, how did that happen? How did this small, persecuted uh, movement 2,000 some odd years ago now become the most ethnically, racially, class, economically diverse religion on the face of the earth, right? And you and me are a part of that. And I've been trying to help us kind of locate ourselves in that larger picture so no matter how convoluted or misdirected American consumeristic Christianity can be, right, even in the midst of uh, subtle dysfunctions of the church, which all of us, you know, are aware of and have experienced, I've been pleading with you to see that God is at work in the mess. So that's, that's what I've been trying to do. Help us to see that God is at work in the local church, however dysfunctional it may be. And to be a part of the church is an invitation to, be, to partner with God in what he is doing in the world. So let me say that again because it's really important we get this. To be a part of the church is to partner with God in what he is doing in the earth. Now, you don't have to like that fact. You may think that you can you know, partner with God just fine outside of being a part of community. But if you want to live as a Christian, y'all, it is impossible to do it alone. Look at me. It's impossible. How are you going to love your neighbor if you don't have one? Like half the commands are relational. You cannot fulfill those unless you are in relationship with other people, right? Um, so we've been asking, what is the binding factor of Christianity? We're doing this, this series, right? What is the binding factor of Christianity across tribe, nation, class, race, even centuries? And what we've been arguing, and I'm just kind of recapping for us, right? What we've been arguing is that the binding force of Christianity through all the ages, all ethnic groups, all time, space, right, is as individuals and corporately, the binding force is that you have an undying obsession with declaring and delighting in who Jesus is. We said that's the flag of Christianity, across time, space, centuries, race, class, all these things, that, that Jesus is better, better, he's better, right? He's, he's more worthy, he's more beautiful, he's more excellent, he's more desirable than any perceived good we may imagine in the world. That's the binding force of the church throughout history. Do you have that conviction? Because if you do not, you are outside of biblical Christianity. You are, you've maybe created some of your own version of what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means, y'all. 
to be a part of the family of God, to have a personal conviction. And therefore, we come together corporately and we corporately have this. It's what binds us together, that Jesus is better. He's more valuable. He's better than law. He's better than rules. He's better than religion. He's better than church services. He's better than sermons. He's better than worship sets. He's better than even friends that we love and know. Jesus is better. That's the flag across time and space that has bound Christians together. It's what the Holy, when the Holy Spirit has his way in you, that's what happens. Guess why? Because the Holy Spirit's always talking about Jesus. That's what he does, right? So today I want to hinge the conversation now. I want to turn it to a more practical kind of boots on the ground side of Christian community. And this is what I want to wrestle with today, right? What is the relational dynamic of biblical community? Relational dynamic. What does it look, what does biblical community look like in relationship? Or you can ask it this way. What are Christian relationships to be marked by? If you're a Christian and you have any relationships, what's it supposed to look like? Because what, what we're getting at is that across time and space and class and ethnicity, Christianity is a subversive movement. It's this revolutionary thing that when Jesus comes to the center of your heart and life, everything else is reoriented around this man. And what does that look like in relationship with others? How does that play itself out, right? So, so I'll, to prime the pump, I just want to talk a little bit about relationships in general, truths about relationships, and then we're going to get into what we want to get into. Relationally, everyone has relationships in this room. Relationally, you bring out certain things about other people, and other people bring out certain things about you. So this is what I mean by that. We've all probably had that friend that, for whatever reason... When you hang out with them, you do the stupidest things that you would never have done otherwise. Like, I'm kind of that guy to a lot of people, right? Like, we're hanging out, and like, I have a 200% commitment to something, and all of a sudden, we're jumping off a bridge together, or we're 18 feet high on top of a ladder, hanging something from a ceiling, right? All you, y'all know what I'm talking about, I've done it to you probably, right? Or you have a friend that brings out the side of you that like kind of likes to watch movies, right? So you want to get around those friends, oh, the movie, oh, yes. Or, or the friend that you hang out with likes to drink, you know? So it kind of gets, brings out that side of you, whatever it is. Because like, here's the reality about friendships, y'all. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, friendships are formative. Friendships are formative. Your friends are forming you. They are discipling you, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And guess what? You're discipling those around you. Whether or not you call yourself good, this is universal truth. I'm not talking about Christians here. I'm talking about friendships. A truth about if you are a friend with someone, you're forming them, they're for, you're influencing them, they're influencing you. I don't care how Ron Swanson strong autonomous you think you are. You're being influenced by those around you. You are, man. What does it mean? Friendships are formative. It doesn't matter how meaningless you may feel your life is right now. If you are in a relationship with someone, you are influencing them. Now, if you are drowning in a pit of despair, in an existential crisis of meaningless in your life, meaninglessness in your life, then you're probably affecting them in a pessimistic way. But you're affecting them. Until they say, well, I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore, you're influencing them, right? So there's the one side. I don't care how meaningless you think your life is. You are forming other people by the mere fact of 
talk, engaging with them, right? We are discipling people, whether we want to do it. Or on the other side, how self-sufficient or autonomous you think you are. If you are in relationship with anyone, you are influencing them in small ways, and they are influencing you in small ways. Or as 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company corrupts good character. But it goes in the opposite way, too. Good company can corrupt bad character. Huh? Yeah, it can. Uh, Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. It works both ways. These are universal truths. Friendships are formative. Why bring this up now as we begin to talk about distinctly Christian relationships? Well, I'm trying to point out that you are already participating in discipleship of those around you, uh, whether you like it or not. By the fact that you have a pulse, right? I want to help you. I want to help you drop the notion that your life as a Christian is somehow less significant or less influential because you don't get up on a stage on Sunday morning. Like when I was a kid, I just thought that's where it happens. You know, it's on the stage, right? And I think many of us can inadvertently have a reductionist mentality that believes all Christian expression and action happens one hour on a Sunday morning. And it's betrayed in the fact that if you ask someone if they're a Christian, the first thing they say is, well, yeah, I go to church, right? And man, listen, if you've bought into that, so I, if you can right now, I'm trying to help you assess the way you actually live. Not, act, not if you come here on something. If you've bought into the fact that all true Christian expression happens on a Sunday morning in this room, the hour, if you, bought, you must be the most disappointed and frustrated, frustrated person with this place. Because then all the pressure is on one hour on a band and a dude with a mic to make you feel like you're a Christian, right? I can only imagine how frustrated someone must be if they look to me to make them feel like they're a Christian, right? Like Sunday morning, y'all listen, Sunday morning is not game time. It is halftime. Sunday morning is not game time. It's halftime, right? It's, it's not showtime. It's time that we let our hearts breathe and remind ourselves what we truly believe is, is real, Right? And refresh and go back into the world to do the action. This is halftime, y'all. This is when we come together and encourage one another, right? Serve each other, right? So that when we go out to the onslaught of the world, our hearts have been tethered to something stronger than ourselves, right? So we, get, we gather to be sent out, all right? That's kind of a side point. But look, some of you are going to need more convincing about this than others. But I want you to, to look. I mean, right, this is why we sung Camus in the Clay today. Your life matters. Your life matters. Your life matters. Some of you are going to need more convincing of this than others. Look, God is not done with you. God is not done with you. Some of you are going to need more convincing than others. God is not done with you. You got a pulse? He ain't done with you, all right? It matters. The way you talk to people matters, all right? What you give your attention to matters, right? How you go to work, it matters, right? Because of, God, because of who you are, you are a person of, because God made you. You are a person of great significance. It's like in the, it's like in the Toy Story, in the, the Woody character. Remember Woody from Toy Story, right? Who finds his owner's name on his foot, and it fills him with courage and meaning. You matter, because someone's created you for purpose, for intent. If you are a Christian, all the seemingly meaningless details of your life matter to God. And they matter, matter to others because he made you with a purpose, right? Now, if you're not a Christian, if there is no God, no order, no design of the universe, then you have no intellectual grounds for arguing for a deeper meaning of life, right? It's all chaos. It's all random. Nothing matters, not even your life. But if you're a Christian, 
then we believe that God made us with intent. And then even, if that's true, then even the simplest things of your life now can take on eternal significance. It's a beautiful truth of what it means to be a Christian. Lewis called this the weight of glory, y'all being made in the image of God, right? So I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're drowning in a sea of insignificance right now, if your work feels meaningless, if you feel powerless, if you're a mommy, if you're a mommy, look at me, huh? If, you, if you've given up a profession or a dream to raise young children and you are drowning in diapers and whiny voices, can you just hear me say this? Every moment of your day is saturated with divine opportunity divine opportunity to form that little heart to be fully alive to God, what you're doing matters. Oh, it matters, man. What you, if you're 65, right? You're on the verge of retirement. You're exhausted. You're getting ready to have the sun set, right? You're depressed. Your life still matters, right? Look at, if you're 65 and over, I want you to look around all these cocky little 30-somethings around you, all right? <laughs> Guess what? Guess what, man? You got a story to tell. You know, and if you're like, well, I'm not nobody. I don't know. I've never done ministry, right? I can't. But you ever made a mistake? Tell them about it. Because you, if you are willing to talk about it, your mistakes can help these cocky little 30-somethings avoid those same mistakes. Your life matters. You got a story. And if we don't realize the weight and significance of our individuality within the church, everyone else is going to miss out on the expression God has for you to have in the body. Your life matters. Quit buying into this lie that it doesn't matter what you do. It does matter. You're a Christian. You've been made with divine intent. What you do matters. It matters eternally. And some of you need more convincing of this than others. Your life matters. I'm just, we're just going to say that over and over again, right? right? Listen, if you are struggling with meaninglessness right now, with purposelessness, that is a lie from the pit of hell. The enemy is messing with you, man. Your life matters. It's significant. Friendships are formative. God has ordained it. So, so if friendships are formative, right, how do we leverage? That, that's just a universal truth, all right? Now, how do we leverage that to be distinctly Christian in relationships, right? What should your goal be? If friendships are formative, what should your goal be if you want to establish biblical community in your life. And we're just going to look at two components. It's very, very simple, right? Two things that are to saturate Christian relationships. Two things, but are really combined into one. Um, and let's read the scripture, then we'll say what the two things are. It's Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? Love. The two things that I'm going to argue that if you are a Christian, your relationship should be saturated with our truth and love. Truth and love. Now realize, notice the scripture, it's not truth and actually, it's truth and in love, truth in love. They are combined, all right? They are meant to work together. And when they work together, when truth and love in relationships work together, maturity happens. Maturity happens. That's what that verse just said. You grow, you grow, you become equipped. That means you came in feeling stuck 
and you left with the tools you needed to get unstuck, right? Built up. When truth and love work together in the Holy Spirit, we grow towards, what did it say? Jesus himself. Fortified, built up, constructed in what? Love. When truth and love work together, you are, con- you are edified, built up. What's the last? In love. Built up in love. It's beautiful. But you see, most have a tendency to separate truth and love, and we make them opposites. And here's what I mean by this. So you're either a person who tells the truth, whether anyone likes it or not. Here's what the Bible says. This is truth. Deal with it. I don't care how you feel about it. It's truth, right? You're either that person. I'm kind of that person, right? Or you're a feeler. You empathize your way to truth. You empathize with others. You are compassionate and loving. You want to affirm and accept people. And we divorce these personality-wise. We choose one or the other. We choose to be a person of truth or we choose to be a person of love, right? And if you're a person of love, then well, yeah, I guess truth's important, but what's really important is everyone feels accepted. And if you're a person of truth, I don't care how you feel about it, it's truth, right? And so that's, Tim Keller says, we are either fixers or feelers, right? So you probably lean towards one or the other, but you see, when we separate truth from love, when we separate godly standards and holiness from comfort and encouragement, when we separate these two, Growth in maturity becomes optional in Christian community. Catch that? When we separate the holiness of God, when we separate holy standards, when we separate that from encouragement and comfort, growth and maturity become optional in Christian community. Now, here's how, okay? If you never challenge with truth and only comfort and affirm, we may become complicit in sinful, destructive behavior. Huh? Imagine a Christian never challenging his friend in truth, only comforting and and accepting and loving, right? And and they're they're with a friend who struggles with alcoholism, and the guy who struggles with alcoholism says, I want to have a drink. And so, of course, the friend's not going to make him feel uncomfortable and say, well, you you shouldn't do that. That's not Christian-like. You should uh, adhere, you should submit to Jesus in this. See, that's not loving in their opinion. And so they would say, okay, yeah, yeah, do, it, do have another drink. That's truth separated from love. Are we, are we chatting? Okay, have another, do whatever makes you feel good. Because acceptance has become the God. Comfort has become the God, right? Pursue that extramarital affair. If it makes you feel, everyone loves everyone. You, you, see, you've, you've, you've sacrificed truth on the altar of acceptance. That's what happens when we separate these two things. Here, have a trophy for losing, <laughs> you know? That's the kind of blind affirmation, okay, right? And that is, look, even the trophy is moral relativism. You stink, but here you go, right? It is saturating our culture, right? We, we have become, oh, I'll just move on because it's going to get to, I going to say the words, I was going to say snowflake, but I'm just not, yeah. That's, look. If we will only affirm and encourage and love and accept, right? That's moral relativism. That's true sacrifice to making others feel accepted. And super, and you are, if you are that person, you are superficially comforting your friends. And, it's really, and you're really not loving them at all. Huh? This is Jeremiah's indictment against the leaders of Israel in Jeremiah 8, 11. He says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
Uh, That's when we care more about comforting and accepting and having no backbone to confront and to challenge. And when we don't have that, wounds don't heal. It's called passive aggressiveness. And half of us live our lives that way. Because people are walking around wounded and we're too chicken to call it out. We're too terrified to make someone feel uncomfortable to acknowledge the fact that they are limping around on the ground and spiritually wounded. And when we do that, when we say peace, peace, when there is no peace, we, we have fallen prey to worshiping the God of acceptance. We're bowing before feeling accepted and the praise of men has become our God. When we choose to only love and accept and never challenge when truth. But then as Christians, when we only confront and challenge without love, without compassion, right? When we lay truth on people so heavy and so heavy handed and we're irritated with everyone, we're frustrated, right? And we have this kind of, this is the truth and, you know, what's the matter with you? You know, Tim Keller says we, we contradict the gospel. You contradict the gospel, Because when you are irritated and impatient with people because they don't get the truth, you've forgotten that the truth you stand on was all gift. It was all love in the first place, right? What you're really saying when you're frustrated and impatient with people because they don't get the truth and you're confronting them and they're, right, is what you're really saying is I'm smart and you're dumb. It's arrogant and it's anti-gospel because you've separated truth from love, right? Tim Keller says, actually, you're the one who's dumb or you wouldn't be talking like that. Thanks, Tim. Because you've clearly forgotten that any truth you stand on as a Christian was pure gift, all grace to you. Therefore, when we talk to our friends about difficult things as a Christian, we are to have the utmost sense of humility and graciousness. Because the truth that I stand on, the truth I'm talking to you, guess what? It's saturated in love. What's, what's that image? In love. It's like a stapler in jello, yeah? Before it, behind it, under it, over it. Truth in love. So when we go to someone with the truth, with hard challenge, so guys, if you are in relationships and if you love someone, you will have to confront them at some times. This is parenting, man. This is parenting all day long. I love you so much that I can't let you live like this. No, you can't bite your sister and push her down and take her toy. I have to confront that. And the way that I do that will be indicative of my understanding of the gospel. Right? Secondly, who listens to someone who's just judgmental and condemning? I mean, don't we have a long history of cultural Christianity that's judgmental and condemning? I mean, how motivating? Has that worked for us? You know, the whole like heavy-handed truth on the side street calling condemnation and hell. Has that worked? Has that really inspired anyone to change, right? So these are our natural tendencies, y'all. Outside of the influence of the gospel, we only analyze and fix and condemn and never mourn and never be empathetic or never be compassionate or we only feel and empathize and comfort and avoid confronting the real issues. Only does the gospel meet us in both places. As a Christian, you've been called to speak the truth boldly because Jesus loves you so much. And at the same time, you are to have the utmost humility and sensitivity to others because the truth we stand on is all grace. Keller says, the gospel meets both fixers and feelers and pulls them towards each other. Fixers are humbled and brought towards loving, patient compassion because Jesus drew them with loving, patient compassion. And feelers are confronted with the holiness of Jesus as he calls them to a higher level of existence out of the miry clay. 
It's the gospel. That's truth in love. I want you to imagine. Let's just think about that picture again. It's truth suspended by love. It's the truth of moral depravity before a holy God. It's the truth of the destructiveness of sin surrounded by floating in God's love for those around you. Are you seeing the picture? What is the image, truth floating? What does that communicate about God's love? What is he trying to say to us? Perhaps that if the truth is not communicated with compassion and love, it ceases to be God's truth. Hmm? If you are speaking the truth of God without the love of God, then your very position is self-defeated and contradictory. If the truth you speak to others doesn't have affections for God's glory and affections for man's good, they're good, right? It's not God's truth because God's truth is suspended in his love. Hmm? Only does the gospel make us safe from being arrogant and angry on the one hand or complicit and moral, morally relativistic on the other. How does truth and love play itself out in Christian community? Well, it gets messy, but let's go for it. And it's messy because in all relationships, there's two parts at play, right? You might be, let's think about relational dynamic. You might be honest and not loving in a relationship and the other person loving and not honest. So you're cruel and heavy-handed, and they take it like a doormat and forgive you over and over again, right? If, if, if you are honest but not loving, and they are loving but not honest, right? Or, as many have experienced, uh, you may be honest and they not loving, and then betray you with your honesty. Huh? Does that not happen in relationships? Someone uses your confession as leverage against you. You were honest in a moment of vulnerability. And of course, what, what do we walk away from that with? Well, I can't be vulnerable anymore because they didn't meet it with love, right? It's messy, y'all. It gets complicated. Not only does the gospel, um, only, only God's kingdom, I would argue, provides the safety, only the gospel, only God's kingdom provides the safety we truly long for in relationships. Because when you talk of truth and love in relationships, we are essentially talking about being fully known, that's honest, and fully loved at the same time, right? And outside of the gospel, we pit those things against themselves as well. Fully known, fully loved, right? We chatting? I'm kind of heady this morning. We think if I am fully known, I cannot be fully loved, right? And if I'm fully loved, it's because I'm not fully known, huh? With the gospel, not with the gospel, right? Because one of the fundamental claims of the gospel is that God knows you better and more deeply than you even know yourself. He knows every inner thought, every word, every motivation of every action you do and has not only favored you, but pursued you not only pursued you, but loved you with an everlasting love, not only loved, but redeemed and substituting the life of his son in your place, right? In the gospel, we find that we are worse than we ever thought and at the same time more loved than we ever imagined, right? Being fully known and fully loved, it's the freedom of the children of God, y'all. And let me tell you, until you've breathed the free air of being fully known and fully loved, you are not fully alive. If you are hiding 10% of your sin, you're not fully alive. 
till you've known the free air of being fully known and fully loved, you are not fully alive because you're hiding. Hmm? Are you letting the gospel bear its weight on your relationships? And if, if you did, what would it look like? And all I can tell you is what it looks like for me. So I have invited dudes that I love and trust, that I know want me to grow towards Jesus, and I've seen the fruit of their lives. I'm brothers, right? Brothers in arms, like dudes I would follow in battle, all right? Like, I've invited those kind of guys, right, into my life, and I have given them what, I, what Tim Keller calls a hunting license in my life. I've said, if you see imbalances, or if you see sin or blind spots, I would like you to point it out to me. And if you're like, well, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Well, number one, I know they have my best interest in mind. And number two, I need to press into the reality that my status as a child of God is not resting on my ability or my strength, but rather on the ability and strength of God. Therefore, I do not have to crumble when someone points out an imperfection in my character. Because I'm pressing into the reality that my value as a child of God supersedes and transcends my strength, character, my flaws, my sins, all that kind of stuff. Are we chatting, right? I don't have to crumble when I'm corrected because my value is not resting on my rightness. But here's the deal, man. Blind spots are terrifying. Like, have you ever been driving and, do, and someone been on your blind spot? It's terrifying. Or have you ever done that blind spot thing where you like put two dots on a piece of paper and you close the eye and you, have you done that thing? It's so crazy. Like, I don't, know, I don't know how to do how to, but like one of the dots completely disappears. And it's like disturbing. You're like, I actually have a physical blind spot in my eyeball, right? It's disturbing to consider. Y'all, we all have blind spots in our lives. We all have areas so entrenched, so unquestioned, behaviors and attitudes that have become so normal to you that you no longer realizing they are sabotaging you. You no longer realize they are inhibiting your joy in major ways. Hmm? So the way I've invited guys into this is by, I've made a list of areas that I know of, areas that I know of, of my weakness in areas that I am tempted. And I gave it to them. I said, if I'm going to screw up somewhere, it's going to be here, probably going to be on this list. And I told them, I said, I need you to ask me about this because I am a coward and I will not offer this most of the time. I need dudes who love me enough, who are committed to my growth to confront me in places. I need that and so do you. You need girls in your life that love you enough that will tell you when there's egg on your face, when there's hypocrisy, when there's imbalance, this is hard stuff. This is not beginner's stuff. This is grown-up Christianity. This is, this is matured discipleship of Jesus. Taking an aggressive position towards the weakness in your heart and life and inviting other guys or other girls into that process. I mean, think of the ego at risk here. Think how risky this is. And yet, it is the safety of the kingdom of God. And if you do not know that safety, you are missing out. I grieve for you. Because you're missing out on what you were created for to be fully known and fully loved. And if you're hiding, you cannot experience that. 
and therefore you are not fully alive because you're not fully known. It's impossible. Can't, it can't happen. The gospel has taught me as a person who would prefer to be unknown and autonomous and do my own thing, right? The gospel has taught me that I cannot be fully loved if I'm not fully known. And this is not easy. You might think I'm crazy, right? And I, I get that. But I just want, if you're like, dude, that's crazy. I would never do that. Okay, well, then you're never going to know the freedom that you could potentially enjoy, you know? Like, I, listen, here's the, here's the freedom that I get to enjoy in taking this kind of stance. I got no secrets. I got no secrets, Right? I don't have to live in constant fear of being found out because the gospel has shown me when I come out of hiding, I won't meet judgment. I'll meet grace. I'll get the grace that Jesus deserved if I'll come out of hiding. See, y'all, even if we're in Christian relationships where confession is a normal thing, normally when you're confessing to your brother, you only tell 80% of the deal. Like the 20% that's the most embarrassing, you leave out because you're like, if they fully knew me, they won't fully love me. And let me tell you something, it's true, they won't. They can't, they are human, they cannot, unless the spirit of Christ is in your midst. Huh? This is how we trust the gospel in relationships. I trust that as I risk being fully known, Jesus inside my brother will meet me with mercy. That's the freedom of the children of God. And some of you are hiding because you, you can't muster the confidence that Jesus in your brother is going to meet you. You just think your brother is going to meet you, so you're going to hide. You're not going to tell the 100%. You're going to tell 80%. You're going to leave the most embarrassing bit out, and you're not going to be fully known because you can't fathom the idea that Jesus inside him could extend the mercy of God, the transcendent love of God to you in those moments of weakness and vulnerability, right? I grieve for you if you don't have this in your life, if you've never known this safety. And this is, y'all... This is equally as hard for every single one of us. I don't care if you're a fixer or a feeler, right? We all have a multitude of barriers when it comes to full vulnerability and honesty for all sorts of reasons, right? Like we mentioned earlier, some of you guys are vulnerable with someone and they stabbed you in the back with it, right? Some of us just, we can't bear the idea of other people knowing that we're not perfect. All sorts of reasons we avoid this, right? We feel, it's interesting, man, we fear vulnerability and we long for it at the same time. It's true. But if you're a Christian, you have to wrestle with a fundamental understanding of yourself in light of the gospel. What is that fundamental understanding of yourself in light of the gospel? What's well, this? If the problem with the world isn't out there somewhere, like in education or in politics, right? Like if the crookedness of the world isn't out there, but rather is within our own hearts, how do you intend to confront and address that? That's a fundamental understanding of yourself in light of the gospel, right? What are the safeguards you are gonna put up if the crookedness in life isn't out there but it's inside you? What are you willing to do about that? That's gospel understanding of the universe. And if you're not willing to confront and address the hidden sins in your own heart and life, then you will always be missing out on what it means to know and love Jesus, right? in community, right? If the true human heart is broken, which it is, then you will by necessity, y'all, need others to help you because your own heart will deceive you. And we just, we can't stomach truths like this anymore in our culture. Our, our hearts are God, right? Our hearts are king. And what the gospel is gonna say, no, your heart will deceive you. And if you won't surround yourself with gospel community, there's not much way out for you. I mean, you ever heard of the idea, blinded by desire? What do you do? What do you do when you're blinded by desire? 
Let's just go, let's just do this, right? Anyone ever want to fess up to being blinded by desire? No one? No one does. Cool, awesome. Just me. So I'm the only one in this room that's ever been blinded by desire. And when I have been, when I've wanted something that I know is sinful so bad that I just disregard all healthy boundaries, guess what I need in that moment? I need a brother who loves me enough to say, you are blind, bro. You're blind. You know what happens when you're blind? You ever try to walk around a room in the darkness, tripping, you're gonna fall off a cliff, man. There's danger when we are blind in our own hearts. We need others around us, y'all, who will say, you're blind here. This is a dumb decision you're making. Something is influencing you in an unhealthy way, and I love you enough to tell you about it. This is grown-up Christianity. This is maturity and discipleship. The question I want to end on today is this. Do you make it easy for people to confront you? Do you make it easy? How do you respond when someone speaks truth? Maybe not loving. Maybe they're trying to be loving. Do you make it safe? Do you make it safe for someone to challenge you or call you out? Or do you turn on them and tear them to pieces? Does your ego strike back and attempt to avoid and acknowledge blind spots and faults? Jesus talked about not throwing pearls before pigs. It's kind of a cryptic verse. Let me read it and we're going to get out of here. It says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you and bite you. Now, it's kind of a cryptic verse. It's actually talking after hypocrisy. It's talking about what most commentators will agree on is this is talking about speaking truth, something of value, and being discerning and sensitive in the way you speak that truth to someone. A pearl is something of great value, right? Potentially being the truth of the gospel itself. And what this verse is saying, most commentators will say is, don't force it on people in a way that they can't digest it. Right? Don't be heavy-handed. Be compassionate. Be humble. It's saying, really, the verse is saying, be discerning. Be sensitive to the pace of God in that person's life. But on the other hand, it's showing how most of us will respond in our natural state outside of the gospel when we are challenged with truth. Truth is incredibly valuable, right? It's a pearl, right? Most of us, when we are confronted with our own blind spots or our own shortcomings, even when someone is trying to help us overcome them. We see it as an attack. We say, them's fighting words. And it puts us in relational fight or flight. And what often happens in your natural state without the influence of the gospel is you will turn on that person and attack them. You will bite them, right? You will trample their words under your feet and say, thank you very much. Who the, do you think you are? <laughs> Just woke you up, didn't I? In our own wisdom, in our natural state, we respond like animals when we are confronted. We respond pig-headedly without the gospel. And we can't bear to be confronted or challenged, even when the challenge would, in the end, bring life to us. And I'd say this is our greatest obstacle of being a community who is saturated with truth and love. Being able to hear someone confront us. Some of us may need to learn to speak truth from a place of empathy, and compassion and feeling. Others of us may need to learn to have a backbone and confront and love people enough to engage them in areas of their life, right? But almost all of us, whether we are a fixer or a feeler, all of us will struggle to listen to critiques of our own performance. 
right? All of us, I don't care who you are, you struggle to hear criticism. It's not fun, y'all, right? No matter how constructive it may be or how secure you think you are, I don't know anyone who likes it. Like if you live in a big company, isn't your favorite time of the year evaluation? Like just everyone loves it, right? No, no, no. Our response when evaluated by others is who do you think you are? And especially when someone's pointing out our blind spots or confronting us with truth. Listen, when the gospel is not your pearl of great value, your performance will be. If the gospel is not your pearl of great value, your performance will be, and you will turn and bite anyone who criticizes it, right? When we don't treasure the gospel, we, treasure, we have to treasure our abilities and our strength and our rightness, and all of us will respond in a pig-like way when we are criticized, unless the gospel rescues you, unless the gospel rescues you from your own insecurities and seats you and fixes you on the foundation of God's love for you. As Tim Keller says, the gospel turns us from pigs to people, right? Real women, real men who don't freak out when our sense of self-worth is threatened by critique or blind spot, but rather has found our value, not in ourself, but in Jesus. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. So we can hear it, we can listen to it and ask God and others if there's something to what we're being told, right? And the end goal is we are built up in love. And it, y'all, listen, listen. It would be naive to think the old structures built on your own idea of self-worth could stay. Those structures have to be torn down, right? God's love has to tear down those unhealthy structures of your own perceived self-worth so it can be built on a new foundation of God's love for you. Are we chatting? It would be naive to think that those structures could stay. Our ideas, those structures are ideas of our own self-value, right? So you may be patting yourself on the back for living, for like being able to, let's just take the construction thing real quick. We're almost out of here, guys. You may be patting yourself on the back by being able to lift a coffee table and move it to another room, okay? But if you're gonna lift a piano, if you're gonna construct a house, you're gonna need some help. Some of us need to raise the standard of what you are trying to accomplish in life. If you think you can do it alone, I would argue you have lowered your holy ambition and made it easy for yourself. If, if you're going to be who God has called you to be, if you're gonna do what God has called you to do, you're gonna need help. In that architectural language, God intends to make your heart into a dwelling place fit for a king. And for that, for that massive reconstruction project, you're gonna need help. You're gonna need help, y'all. Foundation's gonna have to be replaced. Not walls are gonna have to be knocked down, right? Old ideas of where we find value, old ideas of where we think our worth is, those are gonna have to be uprooted. If we're gonna be a community who finds our individual worth in the gospel, right? So I just wanna, I want you to think today, where have others been, where has God been trying to tell you something and you've been biting them? You've been attacking them. Maybe God himself trying to speak to you and you've been biting God back, right? Most of us at one point or another have responded in a pig-headed way when others have tried to help us or hold us accountable. And the Proverbs would call, would, would call that stupid, actually. The Proverbs is just gonna say that's, that's stupid. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Thanks, Proverbs, <laughs> right? 
Appreciate that. Conversely, it says, don't reprove a mocker or he'll hate you. However, reprove, correct a wise person and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise person and he will become wiser still. Teach a righteous person and he will add to his learning. The Bible says how you respond to correction and instruction says a lot about you. And the reality is all of us are in the same boat. All of us at one point or another have responded poorly in a pig-headed way, in prideful ways when people have tried to correct us. And this is the good news. Jesus told a story about a boy who ran away. He spent all his dad's money and ended up smelling like pigs. And he came back to his dad. His dad did not shun him. His dad did not hose him off outside first before approaching. When is he a hug? No, dude. Clean yourself up. Not God. Come, come to the Lord covered in the depravity of your own sin. You got, you got blood all over you. you. Got blood on your hands. Come to him guilty. Guess what he does? He hugs you. He embraces you. He embraces you in the filth. How else does the Son of God take our sin on himself by not embracing us when we're filthy? That's the gospel, y'all. That's the gospel. That's how he takes the, muck, takes the muck on himself. He engages with us in our moment of weakness. And as we, as we hug the Father, our sin gets all over him. And he says, that's all right. It's all right. That's the good news. Even when we've behaved like pigs, the invitation is still open. Let's stand and pray.